Hello, and welcome to Musings on History. Episode 10.3, Medieval and Early Modern Slavery, Serfdom, and Resistance. Hello and welcome back to Musings on History. For those who are new to this podcast, this series is called A History of Resistance. And in the last episode, I discussed slave and peasant rebellions in the classical world. This episode is about medieval and early modern slave and peasant revolts. Chapter one, the curious case of China and peasant revolts in Korea and Japan. So last episode, I talked about how the early Chinese dynasties went back and forth about whether or not there would be slavery in China. And in the medieval period, the waffling seems to have continued. The Tang dynasty was an imperial dynasty that ruled from 618 to 907 AD and with an interregnum between 690 and 705. It was preceded by the Sui dynasty and followed by the five dynasties in Tang kingdoms period. Those who watch sea dramas know that the Tang period is a favorite for historical dramas, and this is because historians and cinephiles generally regard the Tang as a high point in Chinese civilization in a golden age of cosmopolitan culture. During the Three Kingdoms period from 220 to 280 AD, a number of statuses intermediate between freedom and slavery developed, but none of them were thought to have exceeded about 1% of the population. The Tang Dynasty forbade enslaving free people, but allowed the enslavement of criminals, foreigners, and orphans. Free people could, however, willingly sell themselves into debt bondage. The primary source of slaves for the Tang were southern Han tribes, although various officials, such as Kang Kui, the governor of Guangdong, banned the practice. The Tang also allowed foreigners to be sold to the Chinese, including Turkish, Persian, and Korean women, who were sought after by the wealthy. The slave girls of Yue were eroticized in Tang Dynasty poetry, and the term Yue referred to southern China. Chan and Zen Buddhist monastic slavery grew in the Tang Dynasty as monasteries became increasingly wealthy and acquired more land. Monks were not generally required to work the fields they owned with cultivation of farmland left in the hands of free laymen employed by the temples and temple slaves, although temple slaves were a far more significant share of the labor force. During the reign of Emperor Wuzong, the Huichang persecution of Buddhism was initiated. Among its purposes were to appropriate boar funds and to cleanse Tang China of foreign influences, such as foreign religions like Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, Nestorian Christianity, and Manichaeism. During the persecution, over 150,000 Buddhist temple slaves were emancipated. Some temple slaves were criminals, others were orphans who were allowed to enter the monastery in adulthood, and some others were the previous tenants of the land that had been donated to the monasteries. However, a majority of the slaves had previously been free laborers who were coerced into temple slavery when the Buddhist monasteries began their consolidation of the estates. Temple slaves were permitted to marry each other, but were not permitted to marry free peasants. After the Tang Dynasty came the Song Dynasty, which lasted from 960 to 1279 AD. During the Song Consolidation period, warfare against their northern and western neighbors produced many captives on both sides, but reforms were introduced to ease the transition from bondage to freedom, and slavery was abolished in Song, China, including debt bondage. 
However, three decades after the Song Dynasty was founded, its government still had issues consolidating its power and rule over China and didn't properly address the important social issues that plagued the population. The economy of the Song Dynasty was in bad shape during this period, and around the country, peasants were forming their own armies to rebel against the government and they started killing corrupt government officials. The largest of these peasant revolts was organized by tea farmers and landless tenant farmers in the Shu region, which is the modern day province of Sichuan, where the peasants were protesting exploitation by rich landowners of the Sichuan Basin and the Song government's state monopoly on the purchasing of tea. This monopoly prevented the tea farmers from obtaining a reasonable income to live off of. Another contributing factor to the bad living conditions of the peasantry at this time was a severe drought that devastated the country while the Song Dynasty was suffering heavy losses against both the Khitans and the Tanguts. By the year 993, the number of participants of the uprising in Sichuan had reached several hundred thousand farmers. The revolt adopted the motto, equalize the income of the rich and poor, and under the leadership of Wang Jiabo, the rebels were able to beat the government's military forces stationed in Sichuan and, after taking over state granaries, distributed the grain that was present amongst themselves. After Wang Jiabo was killed in action, his brother-in-law, Li Shun, took over his position and managed to take the city of Chengdu. After this victory, Li Shun crowned himself as the King of Great Shu in the year 994 and proclaimed the period title of Yingun. The coinage of the Great Shu Kingdom is the earliest known coinage produced by a peasant revolt in the history of China, and during this period, a small number of cash coins were produced by the peasant rebellion using the era names of the rebel leader Li Shun. It was only with the strongest military efforts that the Song Dynasty was able to suppress the rebellion and restore their rule over the Shu region. The coinage produced by the Dashu Kingdom is often rather roughly produced, and as the rebellion only lasted a few years, not many cash coins were produced, leading to them being extremely rare today. The first two inscriptions were produced for five months under King Li Shun, while after his death, the remaining rebels produced a new inscription which was produced for a year until the rebellion was finally put down. In the 1960s, during the Cultural Revolution, Mao Zedong employed thousands of actors and musicians to perform plays, operas, and create songs about the Shu Rebellion as a means of galvanizing the peasantry and as a means of attaching the modern-day Communist Party of China to the Shu Rebellion, since both were fought by peasant armies against a corrupt aristocracy and shared a similar message of land redistribution and egalitarianism. In the Ming Dynasty, the Hongwu Emperor of the Ming Dynasty sought to abolish all forms of slavery again. It had picked back up during the Mongol-led Yuan Dynasty, but in practice, slavery continued throughout the Ming Dynasty. The first African slaves arrived in Ming China in 1381 as gifts from the Javan Sultanates. When the Ming Dynasty crushed the first Miao Rebellion in 1460, they castrated 1,565 Miao boys and then turned the survivors into eunuch slaves. The Guizhou Emperor who ordered the castration of the Miao was reprimanded and condemned by Emperor Yingzong of the Ming for doing it once the Ming government heard of the event. Later Ming rulers, as a way of limiting slavery because of their inability to prohibit it, passed a decree that limited the number of slaves that could be held per household and extracted a severe tax from slave owners. The Qing Dynasty of 1644 to 1912 
AD initially oversaw an expansion in slavery and states of bondage such as the Bui Aha, which is the Manchu word for household person referring to hereditarily servile people. The Qing possessed about 2 million slaves upon their conquest of China. However, unlike previous dynasties, the Qing rulers soon saw the advantages of phasing out slavery and gradually introduced reforms, turning slaves and serfs into peasants. Laws passed in 1660 and 1681 forbade landowners from selling slaves with the land they farmed and prohibited physical abuse of slaves by landowners. The Kangxi Emperor freed all the Manchu's hereditary slaves in 1685 and the Yangtze Emperor's Yangtze Emancipation between 1723 and 1730 sought to free all slaves to strengthen his authority through a kind of social leveling that created an undifferentiated class of free subjects under the throne, freeing the vast majority of slaves. Abolition of slavery aside, the peasantry in China had to continue to agitate for their freedoms, particularly ethnic minorities in various parts of China. In the Taiping Rebellion, Hong Ziquan abolished slavery and prostitution in the territory under his control in the 1850s and 1860s. The Qing preferred exile to slavery, and in addition to sending Han exiles convicted of crimes to Xinjiang to be slaves of banner garrisons there, the Qing also practiced reverse exile, exiling Inner Asian, which would be like Mongol, Russian, and Muslim criminals from Mongolia and Inner Asia to China proper, where they would serve as slaves in Han banner garrisons in Guangzhou. In Korea, the Joseon, officially the Great Joseon, was the last dynastic kingdom of Korea lasting just over 500 years. It was founded by Yi Song-gye in July 1392 and replaced by the Korean Empire in October 1897. The kingdom was founded following the aftermath of the overthrow of Goryeo in in what is today the city of Kaesong. Early on, Korea was retitled and the capital was relocated to modern-day Seoul. The kingdom's northernmost borders were expanded to the natural boundaries at the rivers of Amarok and Tuman through the subjugation of the Jurchens. 19th century Korean society was extremely unstable due to a high number of rebellions. Some of these rebellions were from rival aristocrats, but in the late 19th century, a series of peasant revolts began with the Guangzhou Peasant War and effectively ended with the Donghak Peasant Revolution. In 1894, the magistrate of Gobu, Bo Byung-gap, had created various oppressive laws and forced the peasants to build reservoirs and settle in unowned lands in order to get rich from taxes and fines. In March of that same year, angry peasants allied under Jian Bongjong and Kim Gainam began the Gobu Revolt. However, the Gobu Revolt was suppressed by Yi Yongte and Jian Bongjong fled to Taeyeon. In April, Jian gathered an army at Mount Baek and recaptured Gobu. The rebels then proceeded to defeat governmental forces in the Battle of Huangjie and the Battle of the Huangrong River. Jian then captured Jianju Fortress and fought in a siege with Hongyang's Joseon forces. In May, however, the rebels had signed the Treaty of Jianju with the governmental forces and built agencies called Jib Gyeongso that handled affairs in rebel-controlled areas. This somewhat unsteady peace continued throughout the summer and the frightened government asked the Qing dynasty for help who sent 2,700 soldiers to Korea. Japan, angered that the Qing uh, government had not informed Japan as promised in the convention of Tientsin, 
started the first Sino-Japanese War as a result. The war resulted in an expulsion of Chinese influence in Korea and also signaled an end for the self-strengthening movement in China itself. Growing Japanese dominance in the Korean Peninsula had caused anxiety amongst the rebels. From September to October, the southern and northern leaders negotiated the plans for a future in Samrie. On October 12th of 1894, uh, yeah, a coalition army of northern and southern geobs were formed, and the army, numbering 25,000 to 200,000, went on to attack Gonju. After a number of battles, the rebel army was decisively defeated in the Battle of Ugamuchi, and the rebels were again defeated in the Battle of Tan. Hostility continued deep into the spring of 1895. The rebel leaders were captured in various locations in the Honan region, and most were executed by a mass hanging in March of that year. In Japan, the peasantry was going through similar motions to the Koreans in later Joseon. The Socho uprising was one of the many armed rebellions in Japan during the Muromachi period and the first launched by the peasants. It occurred between August and September of the year 1428, which in the old Japanese calendar was the first year of Socho and is also known as the Socho no Tokusei Iki or the Socho Debt Cancellation Revolt. Social anxiety had increased during the Muromachi period following the death of the shogun Ashikaga Yoshimochi. There were also bad harvests due to poor weather in the preceding year and because of an epidemic of cholera. The Bashaku, who were Japanese teamsters or cargo carriers who used horses to transport their shipments, uh, these Bashaku of Otsu and Sakamoto and Omi province, demanded a debt moratorium. This revolt spread and extended to all of Kenai as peasants throughout the region who were struggling to repay their debts undertook independent debt relief by attacking and looting sake merchants, storehouse money brokers, and temples. The grounds for this so-called independent debt relief were supposed to be daigawari no tokusei, or debt relief at the time when power passes from one shogun to another. The shogunate was hard-pressed by this and tried to quell the rebellion under the orders of the kanrei, or the shogun's deputy, Mitsui Hatakayama, the head of the samurai Dokoro, or Dokoro Akamatsu Mitsusuke, also sent troops. However, the strength of the insurrection did not diminish, but instead grew larger, and the rebels even invaded Kyoto in September and also spread to Nara. The monk Jinsun recorded the following entry about the uprising in his journal. The first year of Socho in the ninth month, an uprising of commoners broke out. They claimed debt relief and went on to destroy wine shops, pawn shops, and temples which engaged in usury. They took anything they could lay their hands on, and they canceled the debts. Kanrei Mitsui Hatakayama suppressed this. There is nothing more to this incident to bring about the ruin of our country. This is the first time since the founding of Japan that an uprising of commoners ever occurred. In the end, the Muromachi shogunate did not release a debt cancellation order, but because proof of the farmers' debts had been destroyed during the looting, the independent debt relief had effectively achieved its aims. Furthermore, Kofukuji in Yamato province formally canceled debts and because it had turned almost all the territory in the province into its own shoin and exercised power as its shugo, these orders had official binding power and were implemented. An example of one such order is the Yagyu no Tokusei Huibon, which was inscribed on a stone monument. The social uprising might have been the first, but it certainly was not the last. 
The Kakitsu Uprising was a peasant uprising also demanding debt cancellation. It occurred in 1441, the first year of Kakitsu in Kyoto and surrounding areas such as Omi province. In August 1441, amidst the political chaos following the assassination in June 1441 of the sixth shogun Ashikaki Yoshinori, peasants revolted with the Bashaku of Kyoto and Sakamoto and Otsu in Omi province at their core in demand of a comprehensive debt cancellation order on the basis of Daihajime no Tokuse, debt relief on the occasion of the ascension of a new shogun. Jizamurai took the leadership of the movement and it swelled into a revolt of several, of several tens of thousands of people. This insurrection did not spread everywhere, but it rather formed a ring around Kyoto. After severing communication between Kyoto and the outside world, the rebel army attacked sake merchants, storehouse money merchants, brokers, and temples. Under the guidance of G Samurai, the rebel force acted in an organized manner and kept a lid on wanton looting. They occupied Toji and Kitano Tenmangu and blockaded Tan Baguchi and Nishihachiju. At the beginning of the uprising, Mitsusuno Rakaku, the Shugo of Omi province, issued his debt cancellation order, but because in Inryakuji opposed it, their contracted Bashaku of Omi were alienated from the rebels and even opposed them as they went further in occupying Ikiyamuzudera. While the shogunate at first intended to get a handle on the situation by promulgating a debt relief order for peasants only, the rebels were trying to get the support of members of the establishment by demanding comprehensive debt cancellation at a flat province-wide rate that also included the Kuge and Buke. Furthermore, the Kanrei Mochiyuki Hosokawa had accepted a bribe of a thousand kanmon from the storehouse money brokers before he released an order to dispatch troops for their protection, and the daimyo who knew about the bribe, refused his order. In case of the daimyo Mochikuni Hatakayama, he opposed the suppression of the uprising because his own vassals were involved in it and the situation became even more chaotic. Finally, the seventh shogun, Ashikaga Yoshikatsu, accepted their demands and issued a comprehensive debt cancellation order, the Yamashiro Ikoku Heiken Tokusirai, which included debt from land sold in perpetuity by farmers less than 20 years ago. Because the shogunate released an official debt cancellation order as opposed to their eventual refusal to do so during the Socho uprising, the shogunate's authority was greatly damaged with the daimyo. Chapter 2. Serfdom in Europe Serfdom in Western Europe became the norm during the migration period in the late Roman, Western Roman Empire. As Germanic tribes pushed across the vast borders of the Western Roman Empire, those that lived on its fringes sought to sought refuge on large estates and behind walled cities like Rouen, Paris, and Caen. During the Carolingian dynasties, the threat of Viking raids and the reliance on landed knights to repel and defend these people from attacks entrenched serfdom. Serfdom in Western Europe started to diminish after the Black Death in France, especially when the lack of a workforce made manumission more common from that point onward. The English Peasants' Revolt, also named Watt Tyler's Rebellion or the Great Rising, was a major uprising across large parts of England in 1381. The revolt had various causes, including the serfs' demand for more freedoms, socioeconomic and political tensions generated by the Black Death in the 1340s, the high taxes resulting from the conflict with France during the Hundred Years' War, and instability within the local leadership of London. 
The final trigger for the revolt was the intervention of a royal official, John Bampton, in Essex on 30 May 1381. He attempted to collect unpaid poll taxes in Brentwood, and that ended, ended in a violent confrontation, which then spread rapidly across Southeast England. A wide spectrum of rural society, including local artisans and village officials, rose up in protest, burning court records and opening the local gals. The rebels sought a reduction in taxation, an end to serfdom, and the removal of King Richard II, senior officials, and law courts. The rebels were inspired by the sermons of the radical cleric John Ball. Tyler, whom most historians believe was some kind of craftsman, possibly a roof Tyler, hence his surname, led a group of rebels from Canterbury to London to oppose the institution of a poll tax and to demand economic and social reforms. They were met at Blackheath by representatives of the royal government who unsuccessfully attempted to persuade them to return home. King Richard II, then aged 14, retreated to the safety of the Tower of London, but most of the royal forces were abroad or in northern England. On 13 June, the rebels entered London and were joined by many local townsfolk. They besieged the gals and freed many of the poor people who were locked up in there for failure to pay taxes. They attacked the gals, destroyed uh, the Palace of Savoy, which was the London residence of John of Gaunt, and set fire to law books and buildings in the temple and killed anyone associated with the royal government. The following day, King Richard II met the rebels at Mile End and agreed to most of their demands, including the abolition of serfdom. While this was going on, other rebels entered the Tower of London and killed Simon Sudbury, the Lord Chancellor, and Robert Hales, Lord High Treasurer, whom they found inside. On 15 June, Richard left the city to meet Tyler and the rebels at Smithfield. Violence broke out and King Richard's party killed Watt Tyler. King Richard refused the, diffused rather, the tense situation long enough for the mayor of London, William Walworth, to gather a militia from the city to disperse the rebel forces. King Richard immediately began to reestablish order in London and rescinded his previous grants to the rebels. This caused the revolt to spread into East Anglia, where the University of Cambridge was attacked and many royal officials were killed. Unrest continued until the intervention of Henry Dispenser, an ancestor of Princess Diana, who defeated a rebel army at the Battle of North Walsham on 25 or 26 June. Victories in East Anglia aside, the rebellion grew into the north of England, where King Richard relied on the powerful Percy, York, and Neville families to keep the king's peace. Riots broke out in York, Beverly, and Scarborough, and as far west as Bridgewater and Somerset. King Richard then mobilized 4,000 soldiers to restore order, and most of the rebel leaders were tracked down and executed. By November, at least 1,500 rebels had been killed. There was a concerted effort in the Middle Ages to downplay the peasants' revolt since it was a major threat to royal authority and proof that the king's forces were not unbeatable. But late 19th century historians used a range of sources from contemporary chroniclers to assemble an account of the uprising, and these were supplemented in the 20th century by research using court records and local archives. And interpretations of the revolt have shifted over the years. Modern academics are less certain of the revolt's impact on subsequent social and economic history, but most of them are fed, so what else could you expect? What the revolt did do, besides abolish slave uh, serfdom in, in England, was greatly influence the course of the Hundred Years' War, leading to one of its longest lulls that would not resume until John of Gaunt's grandson, Henry V, won at Agincourt, 
and later English Parliament learned from the revolt that raising taxes to pay for military campaigns in France was not the move. Now imagine if King Charles I had learned from the English Peasants' Revolt or King Charles II. The first could have kept his head and the second one his throne. The revolt has been widely used in socialist literature, including by the author William Morris, and remains a potent political symbol for the political left in England and forming arguments are surrounding the introduction of the community charge in the United Kingdom during the 1980s. Across the channel in the 16th century, the German Peasants' War, also known as the Deutsche Bauernkrieg, was a widespread popular revolt in some German-speaking areas of Central Europe from 1524 to 1525. It failed because of intense opposition from the aristocracy, who slaughtered up to 100,000 of the 300,000 poorly armed peasants and farmers. The survivors were fined and achieved few, if any, of their goals, but did effectively end serfdom in these areas. Like the preceding Bunshu movement in the Hussite Wars, the war consisted of a series of both economic and religious revolts in which peasants and farmers, often supported by Anabaptist clergy, took the lead. The German Peasants' War was Europe's largest and most widespread popular uprising before the French Revolution of 1789. The war began with separate insurrections beginning in the southwestern part of what is now Germany and Alsace and spread in subsequent insurrections to the central and eastern areas of present-day Germany and Austria. After the uprising in Germany was suppressed, it flared up briefly in several Swiss cantons as well. The revolt incorporated some of the principles and rhetoric from the Protestant Reformation, which the peasants saw as a means of gaining influence and freedoms. Radical reformers and Anabaptists like the preacher Thomas Munzer instigated and supported the revolt. In contrast, Martin Luther and other magisterial reformers condemned it and clearly sided with the nobles. For Martin Luther, condemning the revolt was both a reflex since he was born into a wealthy burgher family and a matter of survival since he was being protected from agents of the Catholic Church by the Prince of Saxony. In his treatise against the murderous, thieving hordes of peasants, Luther condemned the violence as the devil's work and called for the nobles to put down the rebels like mad dogs. The movement was also supported by the Swiss preacher Ulrich Zwingli, but the condemnation by Martin Luther greatly contributed to its defeat. The revolt took place in what was then considered the Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire was a decentralized entity in which the Holy Roman Emperor himself had very little authority outside of his own dynastic lands. At the time of the, uh, the, time of the Peasants' War, Charles V, King of most of Spain, held the position of Holy Roman Emperor and he was elected in 1520. Aristocratic dynasties ruled hundreds of in largely independent territories, both secular and ecclesiastical within the framework of the empire, and several dozen others operated as semi-independent city-states. The princes of these dynasties were taxed by the Roman Catholic Church, so they stood to gain economically if they supported the Lutherans and established a German church under their own control, similar to what the English did under Henry VIII. Most German princes broke with Rome using the nationalistic slogan of German money for a German church. These princes often attempted to force their free peasants into serfdom by increasing taxes and introducing Roman civil law. Roman civil law advantaged princes who sought to consolidate their power because it brought all land into their personal ownership and eliminated the feudal concept of the land as a trust between lord and peasant that conferred rights as well as obligations on the latter. 
By maintaining the remnants of the ancient law, which legitimized their own rule, they not only elevated their wealth and position in the empire through the confiscation of all property and revenues, but increased their power over their peasant subjects as well. During the Knights Revolt, the knightly class, who were lesser landholders of the Rhineland and Western Germany, rose up in rebellion in 1522 to 1523. Their rhetoric was religious, and several leaders supported Luther's ideas on the split with Rome and the establishment of a new German church. However, the Knights' Revolt was not fundamentally religious or radical. It was conservative in nature and sought to preserve the feudal order. The Knights revolted against the new money order, which was squeezing them out of existence. Historians disagree on the nature of the revolt and its causes, whether it grew out of the emerging religious controversy centered on Luther, whether a wealthy tier of peasants saw their own wealth and rights slipping away and sought to weave them into the legal, social, and religious fabric of society, or whether peasants objected to the emergence of a modernizing, centralizing nation-state. One view is that the origins of the German Peasants' War lay partly in the unusual power dynamic caused by the agricultural and economic dynamism of the a dynamic, yeah, dynamic of the previous century, decades. Labor shortages in the first half of the 14th century had allowed peasants to sell their labor for a higher price. Food and goods shortages had allowed them to sell their products for a higher price as well. Consequently, some peasants, particularly those who had limited alloyal requirements, were able to accrue significant economic, social, and legal advantages. The rebellious German peasants were thus more concerned with protecting their existing social, economic, and legal gains than seeking further gains. For lower peasants and serfs, the movement was their attempt to increase their liberty by changing their status from serfs, such as in the infamous moment when the peasants of Mühlhausen refused to collect snail shells around which their lady could wind her thread. The renewal of the seigneurial system had weakened in the previous half century, and peasants were unwilling to see it restored. Friedrich Engels predicted the war as a case in which an emerging proletariat failed to assert a sense of its own autonomy in the face of princely power and left the rural classes to their fate. The peasant movement failed, with cities and nobles making separate peace agreements with the princely armies to restore the old order in a harsher form. The princes were under the nominal control of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, who rarely visited the German lands and sent his younger brother Ferdinand as his representative in German affairs. The main causes for the failure of the rebellion were the lack of communication between peasant bands because of territorial divisions and because of their military inferiority. While Landsknechts, who were professional soldiers and knights, did join the peasants in their efforts, the Swabian League had a better grasp of military technology, strategy, and battlefield experience. The aftermath of the German Peasants' War led to a reduction of the rights and freedoms of the peasant class and pushed them out of political life completely. Certain territories in Upper Swabia, such as Kempton, Weissenau, and Tyrol, saw peasants create territorial assemblies called Landschaft, which dealt with issues that directly affected the peasants, like taxation. The goals of change for these peasants had failed to come to pass and would remain stagnant, but real change would come centuries later. In Russia, the late 16th century and early 17th century are known as the Time of Troubles, a period of political crisis during the Tsardom of Russia, which began in 1598 with the death of Fyodor Ivanovich, the last of the Rurik dynasty, and ended in 1613 with the accession of Michael I of the House of Romanov. The Troubles actually began when Ivan the Terrible, the first Tsar of all the Russias, accidentally killed his eldest son and heir, the dashing Tsarevich Ivan Ivanovich, in anger on 19 November 15, 
81. His death meant that Ivan's second son, the feeble and disabled Fyodor, became the new heir apparent, and according to historian Chester Dunning, Tsar Ivan knew perfectly well that Fyodor could not rule on his own. Before his own death in 1584, he set up a council of regents to govern in his son's name. Ivan named as regents two leading boyars, Fyodor's uncle Nikita Romanovich Zakharin Irev, head of the Romanov clan, and Prince Ivan F. Mitislavsky. He also named two leading members of his own court, a premier prince of the blood, the popular and heroic Prince Ivan Petrovich Shuisky, and Fyodor's brother-in-law, Boris Gudunov. On the day of the coronation, Boris was named Konishui Boarin, or Master of the Ekari, a title that immediately identified him as the most powerful member of the Boyar Council. Prince Ivan Mitislavsky decided to make a bid for power in 1585, but he was stopped by the other regions and forced to become a monk, which in Russia was an irreversible decision. Out of this episode grew a tacit alliance between the Gudanovs and the Romanovs to protect their family's interests. Outside the halls of power, the Tsardom of Russia was experiencing famines, pestilence, and a breakdown law and order, which were then exacerbated by the raids from the Ottoman-backed Crimean Khanate. In 1571, Devlet Gire I and his army ransacked Moscow and set fire to the city in an event known as the Fire of Moscow. In 1591, Ghazi Gire II and his brother Feti Gire I undertook the Crimean Khanate raid on Rus. Rather than focusing on at least one of the major issues plaguing Russia, according to Dunning, at the outset of Tsar Fyodor's reign, Boris Gudunov and the other regents moved against a threat emanating from the court faction supporting Ivan, the terrible's youngest son, Dmitri, the child of Ivan's sixth and last wife, Maria Nagaya. In May 1591, Tsarevich Dmitri was reported to be dead. On the basis of testimony from several eyewitnesses, an investigative commission headed by the Gudunov-Romanov faction concluded that Dmitri had accidentally slit his own throat during an epileptic seizure that came on while he was playing with a knife. Then, in January 1598, Fyodor died, and according to Dunning, the Tsar's death without an heir brought an end to the only ruling dynasty Moscow had ever known. Irina Gudunova, Fyodor's wife, abdicated the throne to the Boyar Council and entered a convent. Smart girl. The boyars convened a Zimsky Sabor to choose a new czar. Gudunov soon prevailed over his chief rival for the throne, Fyodor Romanov. Gudunov was crowned in September 1598, and according to Dunning, to help calm any discontent and to submit his claims to the throne, the new czar had himself elected after the fact by a sham Zimsky Sabor. During all of this, Russia was still experiencing terrible famine. The Russian famine of 1601 to 1603 is Russia's worst famine in terms of proportional effect on the population, killing perhaps 2 million people or about 30% of the Russian people at the time. The famine compounded the time of troubles. The many deaths contributed to social disruption and helped bring about the downfall of Tsar Boris Godunov, who had been elected in 1598. The famine resulted from a volcanic winter, a series of worldwide cold winters and crop dis. Uh, worldwide record cold winters and crop disruption, which geologists in 2008 linked to the 1600 volcanic eruption of Huayna Putina in Peru. 
Following the poor harvest of 1601, the price of grain doubled, reaching 60 to 70 kopecks per quarter of rye. In the next year, many peasants did not have enough seeds to sow the fields, and by fall, prices grew to three rubles per quarter. The weather in 1603 was fine, but many fields were empty, and thus the famine intensified. Boris Godunov's government unsuccessfully attempted to help the people by selling grain from state granaries at half price and later by giving away grain and money to the poor in major cities until the treasury was depleted. During this two and a half year period, 127,000 bodies were buried in mass graves in Moscow alone. According to a witness, one third of the Muscovite Tsardom perished from the famine. Petty gentry were hurt by the family famine as badly as the peasants, and many were forced to sell themselves into slavery, joining the armed retinues of magnates. Others migrated to the steppe frontier and joined Cossacks, as did many runaway serfs. A large number of trained and armed individuals in the southern regions formed a large manpower pool, which was tapped by multiple ensuing insurgencies. Chester Dunning, in his 2001 book, Russia's First Civil War, The Time of Troubles and the Founding of the Romanov Dynasty, wrote that modern Russia began in 1613 with the founding of the Romanov dynasty. Chapter 3, Resistance to Slavery in the Islamic World Traditional Islamic jurisprudence presumed everyone was free under the dictum of the basic principle is liberty, and slavery was an exceptional condition. Any person whose status was unknown was presumed to be free, and a free person could not sell himself or his children into slavery. Islam also prohibited debt slavery or enslavement as punishment for a crime. Non-Muslims living under Muslim rule, known as demi, could not be enslaved. Lawful enslavement was restricted to two instances, capture and war on the condition that the prisoner was not a Muslim, or birth in slavery. Islamic law did not recognize the classes of slaves from pre-Islamic Arabia, including those sold or given into slavery by themselves and others, and those indebted into slavery. Though a free Muslim could not be enslaved, conversion to Islam by a non-Muslim slave did not require that he or she should then be liberated, but purchasing slaves and receiving slaves as tribute was permitted. Most of the Quran's rules on slavery pertain to Muslims, so most of the slaves in the Islamic world were non-Muslims. The Abbasid Caliphate was the third caliphate to succeed the Prophet Muhammad. It was founded by a dynasty descending from Muhammad's uncle, Abbas ibn Abdul Muttalib, from whom the dynasty takes its name. They ruled as caliphs for most of the caliph, um, yeah, from their capital in Baghdad in modern day Iraq, after having overthrown the Umayyad Caliphate in the Abbasid Revolution of 750 CE. The Zanj Rebellion was a major revolt against the Abbasid Caliphate, which took place from 869 to 883. The rebellion began near the city of Basra in present day Southern Iraq. The insurrection involved enslaved Bantu-speaking peoples called Zanj, who had originally been captured from the coast of Southeast Africa and transported to the Middle East, principally to drain the region's salt marshes. It grew to involve slaves and freemen, including both Black Africans and Arabs from several regions in the Caliphate, and claimed tens of thousands of lives before it was finally defeated. Several Muslim historians consider the Zanj Rebellion to be one of the most vicious and brutal uprisings of the Abbasid period. Modern scholars have characterized the conflict as being one of the bloodiest and most destructive rebellions which the history of Western Asia records, 
while at the same time praising its coverage as being among the most fully and extensively described campaigns in the whole of early Islamic historical writing. The Zanj were Bantu-speaking peoples who had been forcibly taken from Southeast Africa and were enslaved primarily for the agricultural labor as part of the plantation economy of Southern Iraq. The demand for servile labor during this period was fueled by wealthy residents of the port city of Basra, who had acquired extensive marshlands in the surrounding region. These lands had been abandoned as a result of peasant migration and repeated flooding over time, but they could be converted back into cultivable, cultivatable status through intensive labor. Local magnates were able to gain ownership of this land on the condition that they would make it arable. As a result, they acquired large numbers of Zanj and other slaves who were placed into work camps and tasked with clearing away the nitrous topsoil as part of the reclamation process. Other Zanj were used to work in the salt flats of lower Iraq, especially in the area around Basra. Both the working and living conditions of the Zanj were considered to be extremely miserable. The menial labor they were engaged in was difficult, and the slaves appeared to have been poorly treated by their masters. Two previous attempts to rebel against these circumstances are known to have occurred in 689 to 690 and in 694, but both of these revolts had quickly failed, and thereafter little is known about their history prior to 869. I'm sorry, did I say 689? Yeah, okay. Beginning in 861, the Abbasid Caliphate was weakened by a period of severe disorder known as the Anarchy at Samarra, during which the central government in Abbasid Samarra was paralyzed by a struggle between the caliphs and the military establishment for control of the state. Throughout the 860s, the various factions in the capital were distracted by this conflict, which resulted in the deaths of several caliphs, army commanders and bureaucrats, the outbreak of multiple troop riots, a damaging civil war in 865 to 866, and virtual bankruptcy of the government. The anarchy in Samara allowed a number of provinces to fall into the hands of rebels, while provincial governors were free to act in an independent manner in the territories assigned to them. The effective loss of provinces in turn resulted in a decrease in taxation revenues received by the central government, further exacerbating the crisis in the capital and crippling the government's ability to effectively respond to challenges against its authority. This continuing instability greatly facilitated the initial success of the Zanj revolt, as the government proved incapable of committing sufficient troops and resources to subdue the rebels. The leader of the revolt was Ali ibn Muhammad, of whom little is known. He claimed to be descended from Ali ibn Abi, Abi Talib, the son-in-law of the Islamic of the Prophet Muhammad and fourth caliph of the Rashidun Caliphate. But this was largely rejected by Muslim historians of the era as false. Some later commentators have presumed him to be have been of Persian rather than Arab background, but other historians consider this to be unlikely. Ali had tried to start rebellions in Bahrain and in Basra in the early 860s, but he was unsuccessful in both these instances. When he heard the news about another scuffle between Basra's factions in 869, he returned to the region and began to seek out black slaves working in the Basra marshes and to inquire into their working conditions and nutritional standards. He began a campaign to liberate and recruit Zanj and other slaves, promising them wealth, affluence, and prosperity in exchange for their support. A trifling number of people initially joined his cause, and Ali soon came to be known by the title Sahib Azanj, meaning the chief of the Zanj. However, Ali's movement attracted not only Zanj, but other peoples of different social groups. These included semi-liberated slaves, clients of prestigious families, a number of small craftsmen and humble workers, some peasantry, and some Bedouin peoples who lived around Basra. 
While he was gaining followers for his rebellion, Ali adopted slogans of the egalitarian doctrine of the Karjarites, who preached that the most qualified man should reign even if he was an Abyssinian slave. He inscribed his banner and coins with Karjarite expressions and started off his Friday sermons with the slogan, God is good, God is great. There is no God but God, and God is great. There is no arbitration except by God, which was a war cry used by the Karjarites when they defected from the ranks of Ali ibn Abi Talib during the Battle of Sifin. The revolt, which began in September 869, was concentrated in the districts of Iraq and al-Awaz in the central regions of the Abbasid Caliphate. Over the course of the next 14 years, the Zanj were able to combat the superior arms of the Abbasid government by waging guerrilla warfare against their opponents. They became adept at raiding towns, villages, and enemy camps, often at night, seizing weapons, horses, food, and captives, and freeing fellow slaves, and burning the rest to cinders to delay retaliation. As the rebellion grew in strength, they also constructed fortresses, built up a navy for traversing the canals and rivers of the region, collected taxes and territories under their control, and minted their own coins. In its initial stages, the rebellion was limited to the region around the city of Bajra and the Blind Tigris. Early efforts by the Abbasid government to crush the revolt proved ineffectual, and several towns and villages were occupied or sacked, including al Obullah in 870 and Suq al-Awaz in 871. Basra fell in September 871, following an, an extended blockade, resulting in the city being burned and its inhabitants massacred. A retaliatory campaign undertaken by the caliphal regent Abu Ahmad ibn al-Mutawakil against the rebels in 872 ended in failure, and the Zanj remained on the offensive for the next several years. The continuing inability of the Abbasid army to suppress the revolt caused in part with its preoccupation with fighting against the Safarid Yaqub ibn al-Layf's advance into al-Awaz in Iraq, eventually encouraged the Zanj to expand their activities to the north. A campaign by the rebels to occupy the marshlands between Basra and Fasit in 876 proved successful, and soon they made their way into the district of Kaskar. By 879, the rebellion reached its furthest extent. Vasit and Ramhurmuz were sacked, and the rebels advanced northwest along the Tigris, coming to within 50 miles of Baghdad. The Abbasid government regained the initiative in the war in late 879, when al-Muwafaq sent his son Abu Abbas, the future caliph Mutatid, I guess, with a major force against the rebels. Al-Muwafaq himself joined the offensive in the following year, and over the next several months, the government forces succeeded in clearing the rebels out of the districts of Iraq and al-Awaz and driving them back towards their capital of al-Muqtara to the south of Basra. Al-Muqtara was placed under siege in February 881, and over the next two and a half years, a policy by al-Muwafaq of offering generous terms to anyone that voluntarily submitted convinced many of the rebels to abandon the struggle. The fall of al-Muqtara in August 883, combined with the death or capture of Ali ibn Muhammad and most of the rebel commanders, brought the revolt to an end, and the remaining rebels either surrendered to the government or were killed. The rebellion greatly disrupted economic activity and caused extensive damage to the districts it took place in. Sources of the revolt uh, describe burnt cities and towns, the seizure of food and other resources by advancing armies, the abandonment of lands, and the cessation of agricultural activity. 
disruptions in regional trade, and the damaging of bridges and canals in the name of military exigency. Shortages of basic necessities such as food and water at times became severe and incidences of cannibalism are even reported to have occurred. Both the rebels and their opponents engaged in looting, destroying supplies that were likely to fall into enemy hands, and massacring or executing captives. The long-term effects of the revolt, on the other hand, are more difficult to ascertain, and opinions by modern historians vary. Some, like Bernard Lewis, believe that the rebellion resulted in no significant changes, while others, such as Theodore Noldek, argue that the regions devastated by the conflict never fully recovered afterward. The Abbasid government spent many of its resources suppressing the Zanj rebellion, meaning that it was forced to divert its attention from other fronts, resulting in the effective loss of several provinces. Ahmed ibn Tulun, the Tulunid government of Egypt, was able to take advantage of the Abbasid's preoccupation with the Zanj rebellion and forge a de facto independent state, which would survive for more than three decades. Speaking of Egypt, the Mamluk Sultanate in Egypt was founded by a special class of slaves in the Abbasid Caliphate called Mamluks. A Mamluk was an owned slave distinguished from the ghulam or household slave. After thorough training in various fields such as martial arts, court etiquette, and Islamic sciences, these slaves were freed. However, they were still expected to remain loyal to their master and serve his household, which honestly doesn't sound like freedom, but okay. Mamluks had formed a part of the state or military apparatus in Syria and Egypt since at least the 9th century, rising to become the governing dynasties of Egypt and the Levant during the Tulunid and Ikshishid periods. Most of the Mamluks in the Abuyids and Abbasid service were ethnic Kipchak Turks from Central Asia who were converted to Sunni Islam and taught Arabic. In the Ottoman Empire, most of the slaves were Christians from Ottoman-controlled Balkans, and many of the male slaves were forced to row the Ottoman galleys and also serve as Janissaries. In 1748, a group of Hungarian, Georgian, and Maltese slaves aboard a ship called the Lupa mutinied and overthrew the ship's captain, Mustafa Basha, and sailed the ship to Malta, which had long repelled repeated attempts at capture by the Ottomans and stuck out in the Eastern Mediterranean as a beacon of freedom and Christianity for slaves and Christians in the Ottoman Empire. Next episode, I will discuss slave revolts, rebellions, and wars in Africa, Central and South America, and the Caribbean. Join me next time for more Musings on History.